You are listening to the Effective Statistician Podcast, the weekly podcast with Alexander Schacht and Benjamin Pieske designed to help you reach your potential, lead great science and serve patients without becoming overwhelmed by work. Today I'm talking with Andy Grief. The topic is helping statisticians having a bigger role. interview today is surely beneficial for everybody. Andy has quite a lot of experience across the industry. He has worked both in academia as well as in the industry uh, for the variety of roles and he's now really, really senior. And so this episode will be beneficial pretty much to everybody. And so please Share it with your colleagues, share it with your friends, share it with people that you know at other companies. It would be awesome to have more people benefiting from this podcast. So please do this if you like the podcast and if you enjoy it. One other thing, I know maybe you're one of these that are record, uh, listening to this through your browser. And maybe you're one of these listeners that don't know that you can actually listen to it through your smartphone. Each smartphone has, uh, on, on the Apple uh, ones, actually have a podcast um, player pre-installed and there's lots of free podcast players, uh, various apps that you can use and you can listen it through that as well. You can, by the way, also listen it via Spotify or via um, YouTube. Um, but I think the easiest way to listen to it is just through your smartphone app. So log into your smartphone app, search for the Effective Statistician and subscribe to the podcast. The podcast is produced in association with PSI, a community dedicated to leading and promoting the use of statistics within the healthcare industry for the benefits of Join PSI today to further develop your statistical capabilities with access to the video-on-demand content library, free registration to all PSI webinars, and much, much more. The reduced rate, annual rate, is just £20 for non-high-income countries and only £95 for high-income countries, which is about the same in euros and dollars. Visit the PSI website at psiweb.org to learn more about PSI activities and become a PSI member today. Welcome to another episode of The Effective Statistician. And this time I'm sitting here in the UK in an office uh, and I'm here with Andy Grief. Hi, how are you doing, Andy? I'm doing very well, Alexander. Very good. So nice to meet you and speak with you about the influence and the role of statisticians that um, we can have within the pharma industry, but I think also um, in the health industry overall, in the health sector overall. I think there are very lots of lots of things that we'll discuss today. Um, not only apply to pharmaceutical statistics, but probably very much to the academic sector when it comes to people working in university clinics and things like that. So, but let's start with a little bit of an introduction. What has been the first point of contact for you in terms of statistics? 
Uh, that would have been at university, my first year at university. I studied mathematics as an undergraduate at Southampton uh, University. And uh, one of the, the, the subjects that we had to study, the first year was, were, were subjects that were necessary. Thereafter, you could choose uh, the subjects. But my first encounter with statistics was in the first year. And I wouldn't say it was a very happy encounter in the sense that the lecturer, the professor of statistics at Southampton at the time, was Maurice Quinui, um, famous for the jackknife, Okay. Um, and for the analysis of time series. But he was not a great lecturer. He, he, was, um, he was in Ill, Ill health, let's say that, which didn't help. But in general, he was very rambling in, in his delivery of ideas. However, um, it was clear to me uh, pretty quickly in that first year uh, of undergraduate mathematics that the more arcane abstract mathematics in analysis and, 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 and modern algebra was not for me. It really wasn't. And I was much more interested in the application of mathematical ideas to practical issues. And clearly, statistics was going to, going to be one of them. So in the subsequent two years of my degree course, I chose as many statistical type options as I could. Those included operations research, they included some courses on computer simulation, um, but clearly uh, I had already decided that I wanted to go in that direction. Before going to university I'd had some experience of another form of applied mathematics. I worked in a finance department of a brewery in, okay. uh, in the centre of London. It was the, in fact the only industrial site in the centre of, uh, in the city of London. Okay. <laughs> uh, and uh, we were there to make analyses of cases for capital investment. So should the brewery uh, invest money in building a piece of plant, and would the return on that investment beat investing the money in a bank? And, and so that was applied, but there was a lot of sort of accountancy ideas there and that really didn't interest me but if I look back now clearly lots of the work that we did would have been better had we accounted for uncertainty mm -hmm. in the calculations um, a lot of the, uh, the uh, a lot of the projects uh, our assessment was based on data that was provided by people estimates of how much was going to be sold but there was no uncertainty in those estimates. We just took them at, at face value. I went on uh, following my undergraduate degree, um, which was a mathematics degree, so it wasn't a formal statistical qualification. Same for me. I actually also have a mathematics yeah. diploma. <laughs> uh, I then stayed at Southampton and did a, a master's. And this sort of predates the, the, the multitude of masters that were subsequently set up in the medical sciences, this was applied statistics, a master's in applied statistics. So it covered everything. It covered experimental design, it covered multivariate analysis, Bayesian, it covered time series, bioassay, very general. Mm -hmm. um, but that was a very good grounding in the principles of, of statistics. It's it was probably more theoretical than modern masters in, in 
in uh, biomedical sciences that you can uh, you can attend these days. But uh, it was a very good grounding in statistical principles. And then you actually entered the industry at some point. And um, what kind of areas have you mainly worked in during your? I uh, I career? would have. I think I have worked in all areas of pharmaceutical research where statistics gets used. So I've been involved in drug discovery. I ran a, uh, a small group of statisticians supporting drug discovery. I've worked in pharmaceutical development. Uh, I've worked in preclinical toxicology. Uh, I've worked in all phases of clinical research. I've worked in uh, manufacturing. I've worked in health economics. Um, so very much across the whole spectrum of where statistics gets applied within within uh, dr uh, drug development. In fact, um, when I give a course on the role of a statistician in, in the pharmaceutical industry, I point out that there are something like a hundred professions that are used within the pharmaceutical industry, and there are probably only two, let's put aside management, let's not call that a profession, but uh, there are probably only two disciplines which occur the whole, across the whole breadth of things. One is accountants, because yes. they control the money, and the other are statisticians. Uh, and, and so I think um, the picture that people may have about the role of a statistician in the pharmaceutical industry tends to be confined to the human phases of drug development, to clinical trials. But there are many more opportunities and much more scope for statisticians to be involved in, in, in drug development other than clinical trials. Uh, I give an example sometime uh, when I'm talking about uh, careers in, in the drug industry of supporting the company secretary at one of the, the pharmaceutical companies that I uh, worked for in, sh in proving to the inland revenue, or Her Majesty's Customs and Revenue as we would now call it, that it would be a complete waste of time, effort and resource to do a 100% audit of all expense claims uh, made by people at, at, at the, the UK um, offices of this particular company, you could get a very accurate estimate of uh, the percentage of those claims, either money-wise or in numerical terms, uh, associated with um, uh, providing um, uh, entertainment, if yeah, you like, yeah. to people, non-company people. You could get a very good estimate of that by taking probably a 5% sample. Yeah, yeah. And we could put confidence intervals on that and so on. So there are very many roles uh, that statisticians could be involved in in which their skill of understanding uncertainty would be valuable to, to a pharmaceutical company other than clinical trials. Yeah, there's also kind of in the in other parts like in, in marketing and things like yes. that. You know, you can um, very easily now, especially with all the digital channels, you can yes. test lots of different things and uh, use um, experiment of design principles to, to optimize your messaging, optimize your content, um, and that can have a tremendous impact on how you actually reach customers. I, I agree entirely, and I also think in terms of the 
development and education of the individual statisticians, it's very important to have that exposure to the application of statistics in different, different branches of drug, drug development. You can learn something uh, in pharmaceutical development, which you may then use in, in another area, in, in clinical trials, for example, um, or in, in toxicology. So my first encounter of the use of historical information to augment control groups was not in clinical trials, it was in animal toxicology studies in which um, standardly we had very few animals per, per dose arm or control group and we could utilize a, a, a huge amount of uh, historical control information to augment the experiments and make them more sensitive. An idea that is now becoming um, very fashionable in the clinical phases of drug development. But I was doing that back in the 80s, so 35 years ago. And we can, in, there are other examples I could, I could relate where we can utilize ideas in one part of drug development in other parts. But that only happens if statisticians have the opportunity to work in different areas. Yeah. I think yeah. that's very important. <clears throat> and or at least they also talk to each other. Yes. Yeah. So they go to maybe the same conferences or sit in the same department and, and actually uh, uh, exchange ideas. So when you think back of your career, when did you first realize that um, statisticians may have been kind of put in a box or labeled in, in such a way that um, it's limited their influence. Did you have any kind of personal experience on that? Uh, yes, I, I think in, in, two, in two ways. Uh, the first way was by management. Okay. So there was a certain expectation about what the role of the statistician was. That's management or other management? Uh, My early career was not in a purely statistical department. Okay. It was in a, uh, a department which was called the uh, Mathematical Analysis Section uh, originally. And then uh, subsequently I went to, uh, to another part of the country, in a, a company in another country, in what was called the Wissenschaftliche Rechenzentrum, the Scientific Computing Center. And so the, the management of those organizations weren't statisticians. They were more either computer scientists or mathematicians. And they had a certain expectation of what the role of a statistician was. And it was largely a handle turner. Okay, an implementer. An implementer. Some, number cruncher. A number cruncher. It was very much the traditional sort of focus Uh, of the statistician's role being there to give a sample size for a clinical trial. Um, of course, we, in those days, when I first joined the industry in the 1970s, the role of the statistician encompasses a, three or four different roles that we would today recognize. So we were involved in clinical record form design, data entry, data management, as well as the analysis and report writing. So data manager, statistical Stich analysis... And medical writer, or, all, in one, all, in, all yeah. in one form. Of course, it, that would be very difficult these days to, 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 to see such a role. I do think there were advantages um, of having 
all of those different elements that perhaps modern day statisticians don't don't have. Uh, and a particular aspect of that is, uh, I think the first week that I joined the industry, uh, my boss took me to visit a professor of rheumatology in his clinic at the University of Leeds. Mm-hmm. And we sat in with the professor while he spoke to patients. Now, that would never happen these days. That, at least I don't think statisticians on their own would get, to, uh, would, be, would get to do that. There would be a clinician there or, or whatever. But to see the interaction between the clinician and the patient helped in a number of ways. Uh, one, it helped ergonomically in designing a clinical record form around the, the way the clinician interacted with the patient. So there you have the flow of the, the flow, records the flow. in the way the, the discussion yes, flows. Yeah. Yes. So if you don't have that, it's not comfortable for the clinician. For the, on the patient side, it's probably not as important. Uh, but for the clinician, they have a certain way of working. And if you, if you disrupt that by having a different flow, that can have impact upon them. So I think, I, I think that was uh, extremely important. Uh, the other issue, of course, was to see how easy it was for, the, for there to be mistakes in recording of, of data. Um, and, and I think that sort of experience is critical to the role of a statistician, to understand. And if we think about, uh, about modern um, modern movements, for example, towards estimands, um, the conversations with a clinician are very important to understand what they are trying to learn about yeah. the impact of the drug on the patient. And if we don't get into those sorts of conversations, I think our, uh, our ability to come up with the appropriate estimands for a particular disease uh, are limited. So you mentioned kind of the expectation from management yep. at that point in time was quite narrow and was quite an operational one. Yeah. Um, I've seen that also in recent years. So, so I, I think that is... I don't think it's gone away. Yeah. I so don't think it's gone away. I think the other aspect uh, that was difficult for, for statisticians in the industry in Europe was that there were no partners to discuss uh, ideas in the regulators at the time. Okay. Now, that was different in the US. The FDA, even when I joined the industry in the mid-70s, there were statisticians there so that um, uh, colleagues from American pharmaceutical companies could go and discuss issues. We had no such opportunity And I think that also emphasized, if you like, uh, within the pharmaceutical world that perhaps statisticians had a, a limited role. Okay. That would not be the case these days. I mean, the, the, the statisticians within regulatory authorities clearly have a, a, a degree of influence and the contacts which we can have and the discussions uh, that we can have can be very important for uh, individual drug development projects. Yeah, and it's not only uh, EMA and, and other regulators, it's also the payers. 
Yeah, Absolutely, of course. Also of course, uh, statisticians. Yes. And if you're not prepared, well, you don't want to go to the GBA, for example, in a oral hearing without having a statistician there. No, <laughs> I I agree entirely, um, and I think. I think that's equally, I mean, I think it's true with the regulatory authorities, and I think uh, there have been a number of uh, companies that I've worked with where they would have uh, benefited from taking a statistician along to the hearings, because it doesn't always happen. Yeah. Um, uh, partly it's to do with the numbers of individuals that the regulators want to take, and of course, um, senior management want to be there to, to, to hear and see and to influence and so on. Uh, but uh, there have been a number of occasions in, in my career where I do think that an individual sponsor would have really benefited from having a, a statistician with them uh, involved in the discussions. Can you think of any particular story where you would like to have a, played a bigger role? Um, yes. Uh, I, Which would have made a big difference? It was pr it, slightly more difficult. Um, I've worked uh, as a consultant providing services to sponsors as well as working for a, a sponsor as well, uh, as a member of staff. Uh, there was one particular instance where I had uh, put forward a radical approach to the design of a drug development program, not an individual trial, but <coughs> a program. Mm -hmm. And I spent a large amount of time, months and months, with the sponsor, providing the documentation on how this development program would work, what the statistics would look like, what the documentation would be, and so on. And uh, we went, or the sponsor went, to a regulatory authority with all of the documentation, with a briefing package, and didn't take along a statistician. So it didn't take me along, but didn't take along one of their own statisticians. What was inherently a statistical approach to this particular drug development program. And, as I predicted, um, they didn't do very well because the statisticians at the Drug Regulatory Authority were asking all sorts of technical difficult questions which the clinical colleagues who were there were not able to provide the best answers to and in the end um, the regulatory authority rejected the proposal. I think, I, mean, I would have liked to have been there as it was my, my idea, yeah. but I do think that the, the sponsor should have had a statistician. Do you, so, so we talk now about external reasons, you know, uh, management and, and the setup of uh, statistics in, in, uh, in the regulatory side. Anything that you can think about of behavior of statisticians themselves? That oh, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there may be, it may be a cliche that statisticians are um, the employees who sit in a room typing away on the computer all day, they don't interact very well uh, with, with teams and so on. That may be a cliche, but unfortunately there's, a, there's more than a grain of truth in that, <laughs> in that sort of, in that sort of uh, picture. I, I, it may, you know, I'm not sure whether it's uh, a personality trait of mathematicians stroke statisticians, 
But I do think that um, communication is as important, almost as important as technical competence in the in in uh, a professional uh, statistician, and certainly. Uh, in the days when I used to go around master's courses each year looking for the brightest, the brightest students uh, uh, as potential statisticians to come and work with us, it wasn't always the most technical statistician that you would end up offering a job to. It was the one who could communicate, who had personality, who had... Um, almost excitement in their eyes <laughs> rather than someone who could dryly tell you about statistical uh, statistical principles. So I do think that we to be a competent statistician is more than being technically competent. If you think about communication it's, it's also it's not just a purely the communication part it's being persuasive, it, being kind of absolutely. building relationships. No, I agree. Know, being trustworthy, something, you know, these kind of things, and, and being able to put things into the bigger picture. I think that's true. I also think uh, it, there's a, you need an ability to think on your feet. Yeah. If you're in a, a meeting with the regulators and they, they come up with a tricky statistical question that you hadn't thought about before, you need to be able to react. You either, you either need to be able to say... I don't know the answer to that, and we'll get back to you. Or you need to be able to give them the answer, but never try and bluff your way through. Yeah, but, but, uh, but you need to have. But you need you the need experience. To, yeah, but you need to have a little bit of also a gut feeling. Okay, that this is potentially where the answer is. Yes, I can give you more details if you want later. Yeah. So, so I think you also need to have kind of the courage to go with the 80% solution and oh, not say, okay... I, I agree with that. I, I think that's a general principle that um, quite often uh, we get asked a, a, a what appears to be a statistical question um, and we could try and find the 100% perfect answer, but that might take a three-year PhD to do that <laughs> and we don't have that time. Yeah. So, yeah, we need to come up with a, um, uh, a solution that's fit for purpose. Yeah. So, how would our industry or how would the health sector look like if statisticians would have much more influence? So, let's say if we had on the, you know, of the, in the boards of the companies, we would have um, a chief statistical officer. If we had that much kind of influence, what would change? I think, I think it could change a, an organization's use of information. I, I, I honestly believe that um, it won't be long before that occurs. And I think the, the, the big data movement is going to influence even pharmaceutical companies to have the chief data officer or whatever it's, yeah. whatever it's going to be called. It's certainly the case that uh, a number of the, the sponsor companies that I've worked for have had uh, a chief statistician. Now, sometimes that's the head of the global head of statistics, biometrics, whatever you want to, to call it. But that's a management role. Uh, I sometimes think that 
Um, it's, it, it, you also require someone independent from the management as a, uh, a, a chief statistical officer in some sense. And I've seen that in, in one or two companies where the chief, the, the, uh, chief uh, statistician is not actually a management role, but an advisory role to senior management, even at the, even at the board level. Okay. Um, and I so sim similar to kind of a chief medical officer. So that's right. Yes, could be a management position, but doesn't doesn't happen. Doesn't need to be. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's an important role to give advice to the organisation about advances in statistics outside of the company and/or even of the industry, uh, because. There clearly are roles for big data within within the pharmaceutical industry, but not all applications of big data are appropriate for the pharmaceutical industry. So, um, I, I I think yeah. to have someone um, who can influence and, and and not drive but lead the organisation in in the right direction uh, is is very important. So, so could you imagine that you know pharma companies would operate much more like, let's say, Google or Amazon, companies that are very, very data-driven and where, especially in Google, basically, you know, from the CEO... Well, I think, I mean, I think it's a, yeah. it's a natural progression. I mean, if you look at the way medicine has advanced over the last two or three hundred years, um, 200 years ago, there wasn't that much data. Uh, yeah. The yeah. way it was advanced was by... The reputation of the physician, yeah, eminence based. Eminence, <laughs> eminence based. Yes, yeah. uh, and of course we're 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 no longer in well, <laughs> we no longer are primarily in that uh, in that <laughs> mode, uh, and everything that we should be, uh, all our decision making should be evidence based. Um, so I think that that's in, an inevitability, and there are two sides to that, uh, and I think again. Um, statisticians need to be influ influential. If you think about the open access movement, particularly mm -hmm. in this uh, country led by people like Ben, ben Goldacre, I believe that statisticians should be at the forefront of that movement. Within companies, I know there's a reluctance to, to make their data Uh, available, although some companies, GSK yes. and, yeah, and we so. have the clinical study data request yeah. I think uh, platform where there's a couple of sponsors. Yes. So, so there's um, GSK, there's UCB, there's Lilly, there's, yeah. and there's, and there's Transcelerate. Yeah, Transcelerate. Yes. I, I mean, I think it's going to become more and more. But what the role for statisticians is to say to their companies that that. Um, we may be giving something away, but we will get back much more in return. We're giving our data, but we can have data from multiple companies that are going to help us in designing our trials. And they may even, given the, what we talked about before, the historical uh, data, they may even help us in analyzing our trials going forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Put or put uh, data that we have into perspective. Into, so put them into perspective. If, if you find a new safety signal, absolutely, you know, absolutely you can right. Look into similar studies yes. and see. Now, see that as well. Yeah. If you think about an individual statistician, 
we talked what their role is perceived to be. I think and agree with um, a, a statistician who was the president of the ASA back in the 1980s, I think, late, late uh, 80s, maybe late 70s, Don Marquardt, famous as develop, for developing a nonlinear least squares algorithm. In, he worked for an engineering company. Mm -hmm. But he argued that statisticians within uh, industrial organisations, businesses, should be entrepreneurial. They should not be reactive. They should be much more outward-looking, going to look for problems to be solved, rather than for waiting for people to come and ask them to help them solve uh, problems. That's, that's a very interesting kind of word, entrepreneurial <coughs> mindset. So, so um, you mentioned that people would more look for opportunities. Proactive rather than reactive. How they can add value, yes. uh, identify these and solve these. Um, but, but, you know, very. how do people find these opportunities? Well, um, again... Uh, I think they're always there, mm -hmm. and it depends upon your attitude as an individual. Uh, in 2006, I, I left the industry for a short, well, four years to go and work in, in academia, and one of the last uh, meetings I attended before going into academia was a pharma FDA workshop in Washington on adaptive uh, clinical trials. And one of my long-time collaborators, uh, Michael Kranz, uh, he gave a talk in which he said that statisticians had to decide to which group they belonged. And he gave these three groups. Some people make things happen. Some people watch things happen. Some people ask what has happened. <laughs> yeah. And... If you're going to be an entrepreneurial statistician, you're going to make things happen. Now, in our context, uh, we were involved uh, in a project um, to... It was a dose-response study in stroke. Uh, we ended up doing something that was unprecedented. We had 20 doses. This was a phase 2B study. So mm -hmm. we, we, um, we studied 20 doses. We developed a, a Bayesian approach, which allowed us to update the randomization probabilities based on blinded to us data. Mm. Essentially, we had a computer system that we developed, which read the data coming in, and on the basis of an analysis, updated the randomization probabilities to learn optimally about that aspect of the dose response that we were interested in change the randomization probabilities automatically, and so on. Um, now, that involved huge amounts of influencing. Yeah, I think influencing is a key word here. Yeah. Uh, to persuade the organization that we could do this, to persuade the regulators that this was something to consider. And this was back in 1999, so this is 20... 20 years ago when adaptive designs were right at the very beginning mm. in, in the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, he and I went to a, a meeting in Washington um, to meet with 
FDA statisticians. In the end, they said they didn't want to meet with the clinician, so <laughs> it was me. Um, and I explained the basic idea behind what we wanted to do. And uh, they said, well, that's a very neat idea. Someone needs to pilot it. Now, um, I went back to the company, gave that message that they said it was a very neat idea, but didn't say someone had to pilot it because if I'd said that, I doubt whether that trial would ever, ever have been run. Um, because the, the thought that we were doing something that was right at the extreme uh, of development and piloting it, I think would have scared people. scared people dramatically. So part of the influencing was to know the people you were trying to influence, was to understand what would influence them. And it wasn't the technical wizardry of the Bayesian machine that was built. It was to do with the efficiency of the design, that we would save money, we would save time, we had a greater chance of coming to the right decision, and so on. It was, it was those sorts of metrics that we, that we used to, to influence. So and we need to understand kind of what's the interest of the other person what and the what are kind of the languages that are absolutely uh, that you can use yes. and what are kind of words that will be misunderstood, like pilot. Yes. So, so I think that's, that's a and, really, really important And thing. if you're trying to persuade the top person in R&D that this novel design is the way to go, you better make sure that you've persuaded the levels below, below <laughs> to support you in that, in that endeavour. Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Mike and I, in doing that, were, in his terms, people which made, made things happen mm -hmm. and not people who waited for others to do it. Yeah, yeah, completely agree. It's, um, we need to be much more active. We need to look for opportunities and to, to contribute more value. Sometimes it takes a long time. Yeah. I first started using Bayesian approaches in the industry back in 1980. It took 20 years before that became, I wouldn't say mainstream, but people were prepared to consider it. Now I'd say it's almost mainstream. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I think it's very common. Yeah. It's very common. Yeah. But in 1980, if I would talk at a PSI conference, they'd put me on just before lunch or just after lunch as the <laughs> comedy routine. Andy's talking bays again. <laughs> uh, but that's no longer the case. We have whole sessions on, on, on Bayesian approaches. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you didn't believe in it, if I hadn't believed in it, if I hadn't had the drive to keep trying to persuade people, it wouldn't, things wouldn't change. Yeah. So it's a question, again, it comes back to making things happen rather than watching things. I had once a colleague that was also working on base and um, he struggled a lot. He was very, very good on the technical side, yeah. but he couldn't explain what were the benefits. And if you can't explain what are the benefits uh, to, to even to st other statisticians, yes. yeah, then you're lost in any any other uh, communications, and then you're really pigeonholed in the kind of 
nerdy technical area and uh, again I think part of it has to do with with how you approach it uh, if I think back to the 70s and 80s when we were first trying to, to push it it was an era in which there were still very um, hefty intellectual fights between Bayesians and Frequentists in academia mm -hmm. and they could get very heated we took the view that if we were going to persuade people, we had to persuade them of the practical advantages. Not the theoretical battles, but the practical advantages. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So, so generally looking into um, the role of statisticians, what do you think currently um, plays in favor of statisticians gaining more influence? I think there's a, a realisation and an acceptance within the external world, the regulatory world. And not, academia is perhaps a little, uh, is not so important as it once was, but I think the regulatory world recognises the power of statistics and, and statisticians that I don't think was always, always the case. Anybody could do a t-test, anybody could do a, a chi-squared test. I think the sorts of models that we utilize these days, because of the power of computing that allows us to, to use the more sophisticated models, that allows us to do um, other than um, almost um, play Bayesian approaches. I mean, we can, we can really fit um, some very complex uh, models with high dimensional prior distributions and so on. So the, 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 the whole uh, development of Monte Carlo Markov chain uh, approaches has allowed, us, has allowed us to do that. Because of that sophistication of the models, uh, I, I think the, the regulatory world is recognizing that there's uh, much more scope for, for uh, statisticians. Real world evidence, uh, and I think we have the opportunity, but we have to grasp it. There have been occasions in the past, in certain areas that I can think of, where uh, statisticians have sat on the sidelines and said, that's wrong, shouldn't do it that way, rather than getting their hands dirty and helping people. If, yeah. I, think, if I think back to things like um, in drug discovery, quantitative structure activity relationships, uh, if you looked at it, um, I remember um, sitting in a, a presentation by a chemist uh, at one sponsor and he was talking about linear learning machines. It was Fisher's discriminant analysis. Mm -hmm. If I think about population pharmacokinetics and dynamics, again, statisticians stood on the outside and said, you're not doing that right. Instead of getting in there, and helping out, and you can see it, the, the legacy of that within some sponsors, that the pharmacometricians and the statisticians are two separate groups. Now they they should be working together. together. Yeah, yeah. In terms of um, the other things that I see is with all this hype about data science, it's not only the regulators that recognize you know the potential for applying. Um, good statistical methods, it's also uh, people more from the business side. Yes. Yeah? So, so people that uh, 
completely into commercial space like like sales and marketing and uh, they see how um, companies you know that are very very data driven how they have better performance with a less investment um, better customer experience um, through the use of analytics mm -hmm. um, and that's very all often called data science and I think what there is this currently is a threat that we miss another opportunity yes no I agree I agree entirely um, I interestingly when I uh, was involved with the Royal Statistical Society at the time we started to open up membership to other disciplines heavily data using uh, disciplines whether it was geographers um, economists uh, and so on and and because there was a recognition that if we uh, remained a small uh, group of academic type statisticians we wouldn't have as much as much influence um, I um, when I, when I wrote the presidential address, when I was president of the Royal Statistical Society, um, I talked about two groups of um, professionals. There were the actuaries and there were the accountants. The actuaries tightly control who's allowed to call themselves an actuary and, and, and what they're allowed to do. And they have very little influence the accountants, on the other hand, they can you can find them all over the place. They may be in uh, in in business management. Of course, there's there's chartered accountants to to do that side of things. But there are cost of works accountants. There are all sorts of different accountants. Their influence is far greater than the actuaries. And I was arguing that statistics has to be much more open to be more like the accountants. There are all sorts of different people who use data, who analyse data, who need data, other than doing formal statistical analyses of the type we do in the, in the pharmaceutical industry. And we need to be open to that. Yeah, completely agree. That's also why PSI recently changed uh, their membership. Yes. And so, so you, it's much more open now, and, and um, if you're heavily in interested in statistics, you can become a member. And... I think the same should probably apply also to the statisticians or stats departments within the um, within the different organizations. Yeah, not only limited to okay, you work on clinical trials, therefore you're a statistician. If you're not working on clinical trial, you're something else. But we don't want to talk. To yeah, you. no, I, I I agree. No, I'm I'm very much for uh, openness. I think I think it will it will help both sides. It will help statisticians uh, become more influential, but it will also curb some of the excesses that you can see in data science. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think there's also a lot of things that we can learn from them yes. in terms of their influencing skills, in terms of the way they, for example, also visualize data, yes. uh, in the way that they are really focused on... Um, helping other functions and um, that's the entrepreneurial that's the entrepreneurial yeah. thing they, they, where they basically I think helping others 
and is is really the key thing here and partnering with them. Yes. I think that's the other point where I see a big problem. If you see yourself as a service provider, then you basically limit yourself. I think we much need to be more partners with other people. Yes, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, I think there is a danger in, in the pharmaceutical industry that if you don't do exactly what you said, you will the, the statistics groups will be seen as an internal CRO. If that happens, then it may be cheaper for the, the organization to go to a CRO. Exactly. Actually, I think an internal CRO model is the worst model you can have because yes. you combine the bad things of both, both yes, worlds. Yes, absolutely. So, um, what works... What do you think are factors that work against um, statisticians playing a bigger role? I think ourselves. Um, I, I truly believe that. I don't think that in general statisticians are very good self-marketeers. We don't sell ourselves very well. Uh, and I think other groups, data science being one example, are much better advertising and selling if, if you say selling I know what you mean but I'm pretty sure lots of listeners um, get very very irritated about this term so, so can you explain a little bit what you mean by selling yourself I mean by making clear to uh, our client potential client base what we have to offer how we can help them learn more from their data, do it perhaps more quickly, plan it better, and, and so on. We need to be out there, okay, I said selling, marketing is, is, is what I really mean, rather than, rather than selling. It's not meant to be a hard sell. Yeah. What we're trying to, to get across is that statisticians have, statisticians have a set of skills that will help them. Yeah, so I think the selling is basically showing the values that you can yes. contribute and showing why it's in the other person's interest to you know, come into your office, talk to you about topics yeah. and, and invite you to the different meetings and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely yeah. right. And part of that may be simple things like collecting case studies of where statistics have helped in a particular, a particular project. And don't make it technical. Don't make it statistical in, in, in the, the technical and don't make system. it long. And don't make it long. A one-pager. Yeah. You know, this was the problem. This is how the statistician... Uh, attack that problem and here's the solution. And I also think that we have to get better at uh, pushing back on people who come to us with what they perceive as statistical problems. Because quite often when someone comes to you, it's actually not a statistical problem they have. They think it's a statistical problem. And we can probably give them what they want, but that's probably not what they need. Yeah, I think the, the key is that you actually get into much more discussions. Yes. And uh, so, for example, I talked to a colleague that was working more in early phase, and she said something that was <coughs> I really remember to this day is, 
Um, I see myself not as a statistician that helps with the drug development. I see myself as a drug developer with a background of statistics. I think that's... And I think that is speaks exactly to the entrepreneurial mindset yes. that, that you mentioned earlier, that you have... You can contribute to lots of lots of different things and you shouldn't pigeonhole yourself on no. one, one thing. And so, for example, I, I was sometimes in uh, teams where I would be, you know, the most experienced person in the team. Yeah, there was a physician that was coming just out of university uh, from academia and there was a, uh, other team members that were also very junior in their career. So you're not only helping with statistical things, you're helping with how do we get that organized within the company? What is kind of, yes. what are the different people that we need to talk to? And um, you can't just say back, back and, well, that's a more statistical problem, so I don't speak up. It's, it's, yeah. Couple of, couple of examples from when I worked in, in manufacturing. Uh, a couple of times when people came to me and they said, it's to do with um, setting up a quality control scheme. Can you ha help us? We have a problem with this product. We need, uh, we need you to set up a, a control scheme. And I said, okay. In the first case, I said, okay. So what um, percentage of bad product are you prepared to accept? Oh, zero. <laughs> I said, well, that's fine. <laughs> then test everything. <laughs> oh, no, no, that destroys it. Okay. So now what percentage of bad product are you prepared to, to, to um, accept? And so we started talking about that. And then the deeper we got into it, it became clear that the problem wasn't to do with controlling quality on output. It was a process control problem. Yeah. yeah. That they had to control a particular parameter in the process that manufactured the drug. And then the problem went away. So if I, if I had provided them with a quality control scheme... They would, have, they would have still had bad uh, product, but by concentrating on the process, we ended up with, um, I think it was, uh, we had 3% uh, of bad product. We went down to less than 1% of bad product by controlling the process. Yeah. Whereas if we'd have had a quality control scheme... And no, no bigger statistical analysis. Yes. Yeah. So that was one. A second one was... Uh, again, they had problems with uh, a, a product, and it turned out that the problem was not what we were doing, but what the supplier of, uh, of syringes was doing. Uh, they had changed the polymer that went into the plastic in the syringe, which was then, at one point of the process, uh, was um, put under ultraviolet light to kill off any, any germs or whatever. And the interaction between the new polymer and the ultraviolet meant that it was it was internally melting almost. Oh! And that the the syringes were sticking; they couldn't they couldn't be pulled, you know, they couldn't be uh, used properly. So the entrepreneurial thing was for me to say to the person in charge of that production line, we need to go to the manufacturer of the syringes. And sort out their production problems for them. Yeah, help them to solve. Help them, them to solve yeah. their problems because 
we won't solve our problem until they solve their problem. So if you, if you think about, let's say, statisticians in different uh, parts of their careers, what would you recommend for statisticians to more develop this entrepreneurial mindset? I think, I think they've got to take risks. If they've got to force themselves to go outside of their, their comfort zone. I know what I was like as a junior statistician. I'd go into meetings and I'd have lots of ideas how I could help, but I'd sit there timidly and not say very much. Mm -hmm. So you, need, up. you yeah. need to speak up. Even if it's a silly idea, it's better to, to give out a silly idea and start to build up confidence about talking and, and influencing in teams. I, I do think it's... That's very, very important. Yeah. Because if you sit there, you'll be reinforcing the view of a lot of people that we're just there to turn a handle. Yeah, completely agree. In the um, leadership programs that I'm uh, doing with Gary together, um, we are also mentioning that, and both Gary and myself had, early in our careers, had uh, the similar, same problem like you just described. And um, we both, independently had the same idea. We set ourselves goals to kind of speak up. Yeah. So, so you say, okay, at least once during this meeting, you'll speak up, depending on the type of meeting. Yes, yeah, that, that was then a, a goal. And, and that helped you to grow your confidence because I think that is the biggest. Problem. I think that's right. The, another one would be take as many opportunities as possible to give talks. Whether they're internal mm -hmm. or external, you've got to take those opportunities. Because as we talked about before, uh, if you get in front of a regulatory authority and you start to get asked questions and you freeze, it may well be because you've not had the experience of talking to an audience and having people ask, ask you questions and you're not quite sure how to answer them and so on. I think that it's fundamental that uh, statisticians improve their presentation skills if they want to be uh, want to be effective. Yeah, so it goes back even to your lecturers that you mentioned very very early in, yes. the, in this episode. Yes, that, you know, you can be super bright, but if you can't, you know, transfer your ideas, communicate your ideas, um, yeah. It, you, it, they won't get implemented. Yeah. They, you don't have any influence. No, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So I think, I think that is important. I think it's important uh, for uh, managers of statistics groups to give people that, those opportunities, almost force them to have those opportunities. I mean, I would like uh, every company, every statistician in every company to have a goal to give at least one presentation a year. It's not a bigger one. It's not a particular, particular stretch goal. The difficulty is, you always hear the same thing, my project goals are much more important than my personal development goals. Well, they can, you know, if you're developing yourself, you will be a more effective statistician on your project. Yeah, I think your project goals and your personal development goals should hand in hand. Indeed. Mostly. Yes. So, so I think and I 
can't think of any project where there's no presentation involved. That's, yes. Well, you know, they always need to communicate. And I think there's um, also communication and presentation nowadays is not only restricted to, you know, you need to fly to this conference. You can, you know, um, work together with others and give a webinar or something Of course like you that. can. Of yeah. course you can. So I think that's important. I also think uh, statisticians need to get involved in their professional bodies. Whether it's PSI, whether it's your ASA, your ASA or, or whatever. Yeah. Because... Um, there is a danger within organizations that you get tunnel vision about how things should be done. Mm -hmm. So communicating with statisticians from other companies I think is very, very important. You will also have the opportunity of meeting with those regulatory statisticians and find they're not as scary as you might <laughs> think they are. <laughs> and they are for sure less scary if you haven't with that. Well, absolutely, absolutely right. Absolutely right. So I, I think that's that's important as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, awesome. Thanks so much, Andy. That was a, a awesome discussion. We basically started from uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, well, I, yeah, I have to say I've been in the industry for over 45 years now. <laughs> <laughs> and, and went through lots of lots of different things where you know you, you mentioned that um, back then and, and still sometimes today statisticians were seen as very very operational as uh, number crunchers and we painted a picture of statisticians that can have a big influence bright future in the overall health sector and um, and it really needs these influence in communication basically leadership skills to, to, to have this entrepreneurial mindset and to... to There's one quote on. I'd like to end with, uh, uh, a guy called Tri Tribus. He was an engineer, but also was involved in the, uh, the Deming revolution, if you like, the, the uh, quality revolution. And he said that you as statisticians need to learn to go out and find problems before the problems find you and your company and your country. And that's again the entrepreneurial, the entrepreneurial spirit. Awesome, Saxon. Very, very nice Quen, to uh, quote and to interview. Thanks so much. Thank you. in association with PSI. Thanks to Rain who helps with the show in the background and thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the interview as much as I did. You can find more out about the Effective Statistician by looking into the show notes on our homepage, theeffectivestatistician.com. Tell your colleagues about this podcast. Please, please, please don't forget to do that. So, like always, Reach your potential, lead great science, and serve patients. Just be an effective statistician.